Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and this is the Book Club episode. Usually, I would advise you of spoilers, and sure, you can consider this your spoiler alert. The reason I'm hesitating on the spoiler alert bit is because this book reads more like a history book. It's factual, so it's not a story with a spoiler, it's nonfiction, real life. Anyway, this episode is basically a recording of our discussion. The book we chose was quite timely, really. It's White Rage by Dr. Carol Anderson. This episode is the recording from our sixth book club session from June 5th, 2020. There were a total of four women, myself, Erin, Katie, and Deborah. This was a virtual meeting through Zoom, and as with Zoom recordings, there may be some extraneous sounds. Nothing that felt major to me, but just wanted to advise you of that. As always, I've split the recording into a part one and part two. This is part one, and let's get right to it. I'm Shanaz. I'm a brown woman, and I was born in Chennai, India. I'm Erin. Um, I am white presenting. My family um, history is said to be Caucasian and Native American. Deborah Bush Munson, African American. I'm Katie. I'm a white woman. Okay. So, uh, book club is officially open. We are talking white rage by Carol Anderson. And before I, you know, before we go into nitty gritty, just baseline, let's start off with first thoughts about the book, like reading it, like first thoughts while reading it after finishing it. I'm going to go with um, Aaron first. Deborah, I'm going to save you for um, the end on this question. (laughs) It's like, I know you're going to have a lot of thoughts. Erin, your first thoughts. Just Okay. My first thoughts, I thought it was a really good overview of the primary issues that I have been working on and learning on um, as a um, white person who's trying to become more aware of um, the social injustices, racism, um, and other inequalities in our society. So, I mean, I thought it hit on the points that I've been reading about in other books, and it, it offered a really good historic overview and gave me some details that I hadn't heard um, from the other books. But a lot of the other books I've been reading are more written from like a firsthand account or like a memoir perspective. So, um, it gave me more of the like legal background to that. Mm-hmm. So, Katie, I thought it was really interesting in how fact heavy it was because like Aaron I've read um, more on the memoir side like between the world and me um, because I've been trying for the past few months to educate myself on um, different racial issues because I'm going to be teaching in a very diverse school district and I really want to go in knowing what my biases are and trying to um, make sure that I'm helping my kids in the best way that I can with all these different issues and um, 
I thought it was super interesting because it points out a lot of stuff that I feel like gets glossed over in history books. Like, especially when you're in high school, like reconstruction, I feel like is never gone into, into that depth. And I feel like it's just always, well, here's what happened. There was problems with voting, moving on. And then you don't really get back <laughs> to any of it till like the civil rights. And then civil rights, I feel like is very much like, it never goes down to the nitty gritty with, and I think the level of graphic detail and the way the statistics were presented is you, I don't think it's ever presented nearly as like dire and like of a situation in high school as it was in this book. And I wish it was because I don't think you fully grasp when you first learn these things. Like when you're doing biology and you're first learning about a cell and it's all very simplified and then you go to college and you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? I feel like it's the same way of it's so much expanded upon, but I feel like we need to be doing that way earlier on in our education. Like it shouldn't have to be this much later that we learn all these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, um, my thoughts were exactly the same. I mean, my, uh, history background came from, I learned history in Dubai, which you learn American history and American history in Dubai was actually, I started with like Truman. So when I learned American history, we didn't even start with slavery. So that didn't even exist in our history book there. And we learned civil rights this is this is before I came to the country. We learned about the civil rights and um, how they had to escort the black child into a school, and that's pretty much it. It went from you had segregation, you had civil rights, and everything was okay. The end. That was my my education in history outside the country. Well, then I come to America and in college when I studied history, we studied civil war, which at that point I learned was battle between the North and the South over over having slaves. So I learned that. And then again, yes, we went into civil rights and then everything's okay, the end. Uh, So for me, the book was like, wait a minute, there's all this history that no one teaches in schools. Like, it, I feel the whole educational system is completely effed up. I mean, literally, it's kind of like, it, it's like they, it's a whole book and they gave you, oh, let's tear a page here and tear a page here and this is all you need to know. And then let's trash this whole book out. That's what I feel after I read this book. All right, uh, Deborah, just go for it and just take it. From now on, after Deborah goes, we're just gonna just go. We're just gonna have a conversation. No, I, um, I think that it's, it actually starts a lot of uh, relevance. Like right now, what we're actually um, experiencing, I think a lot of people, I just got out of a meeting with SLU where we're talking about um, this is a segue for us to have conversations. So this book um, portrays a lot of things that people, like you talk about implicit biases and people that have actually experienced things that they were not privy to. I think this book has done a great deal of summing all those events that have occurred in the past and giving you information so that you now know where we stand as people of color. So I'm gonna just leave it at that. Okay. Um, I will say, this 
the book was a tedious read for me, Deborah. I will say that. I complained. I cried. I whined. I mean, I was like, oh my God, Deborah, why'd you pick a history textbook? I was like, could we not have picked just mercy? Could, but despite my whining and all of it, I'm really glad to have learned because otherwise I would not have learned this history. And I want to say that I learned better with stories. And there were two stories that really hit me and obviously very graphic. One was um, the, uh, what was it? The woman who was pregnant, who was hung up from a tree and then uh, she was burnt alive. And then her baby, you know, they kind of cut her open and then they stomped on her baby. That was just, I mean, it was graphic. It was just like, I mean, it's just kind of like, oh my gosh, I, I wish I, it, you know, read it in a fiction book, but it's not, this is real life. And to think that was just one story. I mean, we're talking just one. And that is just not even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's how many, how many, uh, I don't know hundreds, thousands, you know, of thousands of people were so brutally um, tortured and murdered. That was one story. And then the second story that really stood out for me was the, the doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, the doctor who built his home and was being very... I thought, as I was reading the story, I thought, wow, good for you. Yeah, take your guns. I'm like, shoot the hell out of them. I don't care. You know, I was like rooting for him without even thinking. You know, like, as I'm reading the story, obviously I'm rooting for him and I'm like, do it. And then the story progresses and I'm thinking, oh my God, S-H-I-T, this is, oh my gosh, this is how the whole story was just completely flipped. And um, that was just heartbreaking to say that, you know, and I don't know, those two stories really stuck with me. And then the third big learning lesson for me, actually, so more recent, I don't mean today as to what's happening, but another third lesson for me was I've been a little, a little angry, to be very honest, at, um, okay, I've been a lot angry at Trump's elections, at Trump getting elected. And in a lot of ways, Deborah, I'll be honest, I've been angry with African Americans, because I've been like, you went out and voted for Obama. Why didn't you go out to the polls and vote for Clinton? I mean, if you guys voted as much as you did for Obama, this would not have happened. And then I read this book and I was like, oh, you couldn't. Okay. I mean, and it it helped me understand. It helped me quell myself and it helped me go, oh my God, this is just, this is absolute oh my God. And then I'm kind of like, 
wait a minute, you guys won't even let them vote. I'm like, come on. He just, I'm just, oh, I'm so mad. I am so like, oh, so mad. But anyway, I'll stop now. And um, on that last issue, I mean, I think it's very timely because a lot of people are talking right now and they're like, you know, the right answer is not to protest, it's to go out and vote. And I'm like, mm, right. but you all have been passing all these laws. Ever since I read um, um, uh, The New Jim Crow, they talk a lot about voter suppression in that book. And then this one did too. Um, but to, to say that that is the right thing to do, it's like, but you've blocked people from voting. And especially here in this state, you know, in Missouri, um, Katie, I don't know where you're, you're located, but here in Missouri, like in 20, what was it, 2017, 2018, they passed the voter ID law where you have to have mm-hmm. a, an actual state-issued ID or federal government-issued ID. And so many people don't have that. They're, they don't need a driver's license because they're not driving. They're taking public transport here in, in St. Louis. And I mean, just to like hear people say that makes me so angry to say like, well, I mean, we really need both. Like we need both approaches to the troubles that we're facing in this country today. I mean, and really honestly, probably more than protest and more than voting people in, we've got to, I mean, not every position is up for a vote. So we've got to have people that are willing to do reform, period. And um, yeah, that I think that issue is very, very relevant, not just in the history book, but is relevant today. And also with the voting, uh, Missouri, you need, if you're going to vote by mail, you need it notarized. I mean, what the flip? I mean, seriously, I, when, my, when Brad told me that, I was going, but that's just, why? And then you read this book, and for two cases of voter fraud outside, you know, millions, I mean, what percentage is that? It's kind of like, and I, I'm willing to bet those two cases were probably white Americans. I mean, I, if, if I had to put my life on it, I would say those two cases were probably uh, evangelical white Americans who are committing the stupid voter fraud. And now it's, so it makes me angry that, you know, the voter thing. Uh, but I will tell you, part of my misconception also came from, um, I remember before Trump got elected, you know, like, uh, even Obama was campaigning for Clinton at that point. And I remember Obama said, if you want, you know, my legacy to stand, go out and vote. I, I remember him saying that. I, I remember his face was so impassioned. And that's all he kept saying. You want this? go out and vote. And so when Obama said it and then the votes didn't come in. Yeah, there's all of that. But I'll shut up. I'm sorry. I'm just, it's just been... Deborah, you're just, you're just, I was, I was hoping you would be very vocal and you're just like smiling and you're just like, okay, but, but Katie, go for it. I'm sorry. Just, yeah. Things that were really intense in the book and. Um, I was really struck by the housing case, especially because the, um, when I was right before schools closed because of Corona, I was starting to teach my 11th graders, um, the Harlem Renaissance. And I really want to make sure we had that historical background. I was teaching them about the great migration. And when you're doing the great migration in high school, it's, well, people went North and there were jobs and there were houses and they're going for better education. It didn't always work out, but it was way better. And then I'm reading this. I'm like, this isn't any better. This is terrible. (laughs) And like, I feel bad as an educator that like 
I want to give them a clearer picture of doing that. And I think it's really hard to give that nuance because I was looking for like YouTube videos and readings for them to do. And I feel like the resources out there don't go into the nuance that existed and the injustices that were in the North with like as great of detail as there needs to be. And I think that like, it's important to be like, it, it wasn't a happily ever after. And it's not that that's how history works. It's not a perfect bow at the end. And there's like the solution, um, which I think is really tricky. And like, I felt so bad because I had one student in the class who was like, uh, he's like, you know, this is the only time that I read authors that look like me is when we do the Harlem Renaissance. He's like, that's the only time somebody looks like me. And it's like trying to like find that balance of, you know, you want to get the history, you want to have the literature, but I feel bad when it's like, you know, this one period of time and I'm like, this isn't how I want to like give you this one portion is like, you know, this isn't, I, I want to keep pushing forward with it. And that's why I'm like so excited that like, um, I want to have them read authors that are like, there's this whole movement on Instagram of like, let's read books where there are happily ever afters and people are happy in them. And it's not just, you know, and I'm like, I want to show you that like, things are going to get better. And, you know, it's, it's hard trying to find that balance with everything because you want to educate them, but I want to like, you know, be hopeful with it too, you know? Right. Have mm-hmm. you guys read, uh, I know Katie said she has, but have uh, you, Deborah and Aaron, have you read um, Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me? No. Aaron? I've st- I started it and it was one of those that got taken away too quickly for me. Oh to my gosh. You know that what I'm saying? So I gotta, book I gotta go was... Oh, how do I even describe it? It's it's a um, a memoir and a kind of an instruction book from a father, a black father, to his black son, and um, so soulful. Just, I mean, all I could say is just so soulful. Like I, it's one of those books I want to read again, and uh, you know, you really gotta. Think about the emotional content of it. Because here I saw a YouTube video, okay? And in this YouTube video, there was a kid, a teenage kid with uh, someone's knee on their neck, exactly like what just happened with George Floyd. Well, and in the video, the caption was, I bet you thought this was the George Floyd video. And I was, for a minute, I was like, because I didn't see the George Floyd video. I didn't, I, I couldn't handle it. For a minute, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe this is that video, or I don't want to watch it. And then he goes, it is not that video. What it was, was a black father doing that to his black son and videoing it and said, okay, son, breathe. Come on, come on, stay calm. You just don't move. You just got to keep breathing. I know this hurts. You know, this is what will happen to you. Stay calm and breathe. And just, this was recent. And, uh, and then the video goes to, this is what I taught my kid today. What did you teach your child today? I mean, it was like one of those, you know, this is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? It was one of those. Like, wow. I think it's important that we understand um, that we have to have a dialogue. And not only do we have to have a dialogue about race and racism within America, is that there has to be follow through. Uh, I like how she started it out when she talked about the fact that um, 
it's not just the mere presence of people of color, it's the advancement of those individuals. And when you talk about the advancement of people of color, when for so long you talk about the amendments, the 14th, um, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment, how those were designed to oppress people of color, we see still today, we were just talking about this in a meeting that I just got out of, we were talking about how we try to make prog progress and that there is no um, real support and accountability has to be there and it has to be placed on the people who are in power. So when you talk about resources, when you talk about the things that, you know, give people the leverage to get a place where most people who are privileged, white privilege is, those are the things that they don't want people of color to have. And you got to remember that, you know, we talk about who built this country. You know, we were, um, he were, were actually taken in captivity uh, and perpetual servitude. And now you talk about how the civil rights movement, all those things built freedom and allow people to come in, women to vote and other things that have allowed, you know, that have happened in the past to allow people to come here to this country and enjoy those freedoms. But I think that when we talk about, we have a dialogue, a real dialogue about race and racism, people feel uncomfortable. And I know that the book, when I suggest the book, I did it the same way at work. People were like, oh no, we don't want to talk about that. I'm like, but we have to, because if we don't, then we're not going to create what we know is generativity for the next generation. People need to know the history and the true history is here. But people, they take the, the luxury of giving you what they think you need to know and not giving you the full story. Um, I think that it's important. It's relevant to talk about these things. I think this is the perfect segue of what happened with Floyd so that now people see what we, because you know, it's been happening for hundreds of years, What's on camera now, it's been happening. We see this and now people have said, we have to take a stand and we can't do this alone. We talk about suffrage, it only happened a hundred years ago, right? Women voting. So all these things that we see now is just systemic. And it's now where people have to have a dialogue. They have to say, this has to end. And how do we get equity? Because we, we can see, say every day that, oh, I'm not racist. I don't have those implicit biases. We do. We all do. I know I do when I work on them every day. But we have to have, we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. We have to have that conversation with our students. We have to have that conversation with our colleagues, with our families, about things that are just driving other individuals crazy. People like myself, I'm very passionate. I didn't want to talk at all. She was like, oh, are you going to talk? Yes, I can go on for days. My dissertation stems around this particular situation. It stems around the fact that, I don't know if you are, are privy to this, that in 18, um, I'm sorry, in 1900, the number of white physicians compared to black physicians, the number of black physicians outranked whites 10 to one until they standardized ed education. So we have this guy, his name was Abraham Flexner. He came up with this ideal in, to implement the Flexner Report. Him and Carnegie Foundation got together. They implemented this to, to minimize the number of black institutions that were there at the time, I think it was 10. And then after the actual implementation of standardizing of education, there was only two. So again, when you talk about systemic racism and the problems that are here that exist, we have to talk about those. And we have to realize that sometimes people are not comfortable with those things. 
but how do you get people to be comfortable about talking about, I, I feel like the biggest sin of America? How do you get people, talk about it. Get people who actually can, can facilitate those types of dialogues, can help people understand where we are. Cognitively, you know, we're black people, they assume that black people can't do things that other people, white counterparts can't oh, do. That's talk right. About, because black them. people can't do science, right, Deborah? Did and you I'm tell me that? And I'm a scientist. I'm a, I have two degrees in science. So talk about those things so that people will understand their biases, those implicit biases, are something that's designed. It's by design. And I'll stop because I'll continue. I'll, I'll continue, so I'll stop. <laughs> I, um, I have a question about having a conversation. So, I mean... I'm not white. I mean, I am brown. I'm kind of in the mix of, I don't even know what I am. Uh, but I mean, obviously I have my own biases. If I were to want to have a conversation about race and let's say I was white, I would be worried about A, being called a racist by having a conversation. I mean, I feel there is a fear that if a white person even starts a conversation, that they'd be called a racist. And then secondly, they get very defensive and then that's the end of the conversation. And then also people, I feel, don't want to make a mistake. Like, it's like, okay, you're gonna make a conversation. Yes, you're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna fall down. You're gonna learn that oh, what you just said there was not an appropriate statement, but people, I feel, are afraid of that slipping even once in the process of learning. What are your thoughts on that? It's funny you should say that because I felt like when I started speaking out more and being willing to have more conversations about race and racism was when I was reading books that were talking about how like we all make mistakes, especially as women, like that is something that we have a hard time. Like that's oftentimes a reason why women don't speak out is because they're afraid of how they're going to be perceived by others and that they're going to make a mistake and that, so they would rather just be quiet than say something that is a mistake and, and because they already feel like the books are stacked against them. Right. But when I started ma reading books about that, I started being more comfortable in talking about lots of things, including race. And, and I felt myself being like, you know what, if I make a mistake, I make a mistake. And, and I hope that the people that I have, that I've had comfort to have these conversations with around me are comfortable enough to correct me. I hope that I can correct my, you know, I can pick up on those things myself and be reflective. And uh, so I, I did see a big change in myself when I became more comfortable with being okay with not being perfect, you know? Um, I think that is part of, like, that is part of the whole idea of white identity is this, like, idea of perfection, right? Like, that's why a lot of people, well, a lot of white people don't want to admit that they have any racial bias because it's this dichotomy of that you're either good or you're bad. And if you have any, any, any prejudices at all, especially racial prejudices or racial biases, and you admit those, well, you're admitting that you're a bad person and that you're not a perfect person. Well, like heads up, like none of us are perfect. We're human and we're all going to make mistakes. And like, we just have to learn from those mistakes. And I think that when you're entering into relationships in good faith, 
part of the idea is that you understand that you bring baggage to that relationship and you're going to have to deal with it. That's, I mean, when I started to understand those things, that's when I felt more confident to speak out and speak out against, well, not against, but speak to those and, and, and really question um, the racism and biases that I saw in my own community. I think what's scariest for me is how prevalent like cancel culture is. Like, I feel like when people make mistakes, especially because like everything is permanent on the internet, that like they get called down to like, you're canceled, you're invalid, you know, good try, but like, no. And I think it's so hard because people are so quick to like judge. And I think it's interesting because like right now it's a conversation of we're all learning. We're all trying to like learn this together. And I feel like it's a very like tense, very apologetic atmosphere of trying to figure out what to say, how to say it, should you say anything. And I think it's like good because we're having conversations, but I think it's still like tense of if you say the wrong thing, how is that going to like affect you down the road? Because like, again, nobody is perfect. Everybody is learning and everybody makes mistakes. Um, I feel like that's like the major concern of like doing something in like a very public way, like a lot of celebrities are like trying to do um, where like, again, a lot of it is very well intentioned. Um, But like, for example, with like the um, black squares on Tuesday, um, people were like, oh man, that was not the right thing to do. Um, Here's why this wasn't right. I've realized a few hours later, people are all saying again, doing, they were all doing it with good intention. Um, but then it's hard because I feel like you're spending more time going, oh no, I did this wrong. I shouldn't say anything again. Um, instead of moving forward with the conversation, you know, like, I don't know necessarily how like the internet plays a role in like whether or not you want to speak up. It Mm -hmm. plays a huge role because after blackout Tuesday, I don't think I've really made an Instagram post. I'm kind of, um, like normally I, I have an Instagram a bookstagram account, like it's all my books that I've read. And as soon as I read a book, I post a picture of it. White Rage, no problem. I can post a picture of White Rage. It's an acceptable book now to post. Any other book I read is not acceptable. I just finished the book Untamed, which is a great book, by the way. But I finished it on audio and I have the picture. And I was going to post it. I'm like, nope, you can't post it. Um, you need to be muted for, uh, let's just, just mute for another week. Just don't post anything. Just don't do it. And, um, there's a a person on bookstagram. She's a black woman and she has a list of, um, diverse reads. Like if you go to her, she's got a, a story, uh, a safe story with all the diverse reads that she recommends, uh, not necessarily black, but you know, just diverse And whenever something came up on Instagram, I messaged her and I said, there's this person who posted this. Should I respond? Because I'm ready to punch her out, you know? And she, and she would be, she messaged me back going, um, actually don't respond. Just, just let it go. Things like that. Uh, I think Erin, the other, that woman who posted, um, oh my gosh. I still want to punch her out. I so badly want to punch her out. I mean, this is me because I don't No, Let me explain what happened. So you have blackout Tuesday. Okay. The aim of blackout Tuesday was that we are not going to talk. We're going to shut up and let the African-Americans talk. That was the aim. We were going to mute ourselves, turn our ears on, let them talk. 
okay? Uh, and if we were going to say anything, it had to be only in support of them. Well, someone posted a picture of a, of a knight with stars on it. And the hashtag was, well, I believe all people are like stars because everyone's beautiful and all lives matter and all colors matter and black or white, or everybody matters. And Erin read my response because I was going to, I had a scathing response to her. Uh, my response was like, this is the very definition of white privilege. And, you know, the very fact that you privileged enough to say this when this is, I was just going to go at her. Like I was like going for the juggler. Erin's laughing because she read my post and Erin's like, Erin had to be like, um, no, 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 don't say anything. Just ask her a question. Well, then what happened is I ended up talking to Monique who didn't join us today. And Monique said, no, 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 don't ask a question because what is that going to do? Uh, you know, just no. And then Monique toned my post down to not be so, I'm going to punch you out, but more of <laughs> just kind of saying that, yeah, I understand that all lives matter, but today we're going to talk about black lives. So I would really consider that, hope you would think about black. So that's what I ended up posting. But the point is after that, it's just been hard to post on Instagram because everything like it's become a, if I post this week, it's a guilt. Like I even, I posted on my stories yesterday because I got a book in the mail and I'm still holding the guilt for posting it because I posted a story about a book I got or something like that. Um, that's kind of how this movement has gone. It's good and it's bad. The good is that I feel people are more aware of it. People are starting the conversation like Deborah said, but I'll tell you why it's bad. It's bad because if you have a, I'm muted from June 1st to June 6th or June 1st to June 7th, you have that, that gives you six days to behave. And once that's over, like, okay, you don't have to behave anymore. You're done. I, hey, I've done my civil duty here. I've blacked out. I've muted. I'm good. Okay, goodbye, everyone. Hey, I'm reading all my white authors now. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Hey, what do you think about the Black Lives Matter? I did my six, I did my six days of muting. I'm good. That's, could be a potential bad. I am seeing, I am seeing bookstagram accounts where people are saying that, no, this is not a one-time thing. We are actively going to read more black authors and diverse authors. Which, I hate um, that it took to this point though for people to say, oh, I don't have any books by black authors or I don't have any books by like a non-white author at all. Like, I think it's crazy seeing this many stories that are coming up now where people are like, it took me until today to realize and I'm like, but how, how far in your life would you go otherwise with saying I've never read anything or own anything or any of those things? And I think it's crazy if it's like, you know, it, it took that long. And it's like, well, what's it going to take for you to read something by a Asian author or a Latinx author or a gay author? Like, what at what point do you diversify? And it's like, are you 
reading books because you feel guilty? Are you reading books because you want to feel educated? Are you really reading books because is this going to be like you said, like a one week thing of, well, I read my white rage this one week and I am done and I am good and I did my thing, you know, Mm -hmm. or is this something that you're going to intentionally do? And I love that there's so many resources now. Here's bookstores you can support. Here are new authors coming out that you can support. Um, Here's different ways that you can continue doing this past this week. And I think that's super important to see like, where are you intentionally spending your money? What library books are you getting out if you're not buying books? Because I don't personally buy very many books because I just graduated college and I don't have a lot of money yet. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I'm like, I'll keep taking out of the library because it matters. And I feel like it's important to validate anything that you're doing right now. It, it does matter. Even if it's just taking a book out of the library, it's still something. No, I, um, I just recently read that... Uh, if you take out a book uh, from the library, that adds, like that, uh, the count matters. Like they keep track of it. It's kind of like, so let's say I'm a publishing company, right? And I'm looking only at the, at the bottom line, which is the dollar figure. And I'm looking at, oh, these are so many sales. For someone who cannot purchase a book, I'm also looking at the numbers of how many times was this book uh, taken out? in the library. And those numbers are also monitored. So um, absolutely. So not, it's not just, hey, I don't have the money for right now to buy this book. Well, then at least take it out of the library. That's good if they have a tracking mechanism um, to know how frequent uh, people actually come in and check out those types of books, because it's important. I think when we talk about multiculturalism, that's important. Um, and I think we don't want to dilute that with the fact that multiculturalism is important, but we, we always seem to get le- lost in that when we start talking about those things. People of color being black people sometimes usually gets the short end of the stick when you talk about, okay, what kind of books are you reading? Are you really truly reading books that are, you know, actually uh, that are authored by people who are Asian descent or people who you know, or African-American, I think that what I'm trying to say here is that I think that we need to make sure that there is a balance, that we know about all of them and not just the fact that we have one or two and we're done, you know, it's, it's over. So I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I we, feel like I feel like there's so much that gets read on like certain months, you know, when it's like, oh, this is a month honoring so-and-so and it's like, well, it's great. You did it during that time, but make it a habit always you know and I think that that's difficult sometimes but I think that like what's wonderful about Goodreads is you can look through your year in review and go back and be like well what am I doing here and I started making a Microsoft form for myself where I'm tracking what are my authors what 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 are they like what are my main characters like what are themes that are being touched upon and I'm like can I start making trends for myself to see in my head am I matching up with what I'm actually doing on paper. If I'm saying to myself, I want to be more diversely, how truly am I meeting this goal and what can I do to adjust? Where am I reading more, reading less? How can I try and make this as multicultural as I can? I have a question for you, Katie, about white rage. And that is, how would you incorporate educating your students about this book because isn't education, isn't there like specific syllabuses and criterions and what you teach and what you don't teach? So now that you have read this, 
how would that change how you teach and what are your thoughts on changing education? Well, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> I think the biggest thing I would change in education is have more books that reflect our students, especially in middle school. Um, so I'm going to be teaching middle school this year. And something that I've heard again and again in the district I'm in is the students complain, none of these characters look like me. None of these authors look like me. Why should I care? So everyone's like, well, why don't they like reading in high school? They haven't found a book they can relate to. They haven't found an experience that mirrors them. And especially when middle school is a time of immense growth and immense, who am I in this world and where do I fit in? They need to be able to see that there are strong characters that look like them and how they make their way in the world. And they need to be able to experience that. And that's something that I really want to change. Um, and again, you are in some ways limited by your school's curriculum. It depends what you have in the book closet, but there is, and also what your you know team approves. But I think more and more people are saying if you if you can find the resources for the book, and there's all those you know online things you can do of say, can I have grant money for this? Can I do a GoFundMe for this? Can I go to a thrift store? Can I find an online version of this book? Can I something to do it? There's always a way if it's important enough for you. And also, even if you're not even doing a full book, if you're doing short stories, I incorporated slam poetry into my poetry unit. Um, trying to find any resources that you can, and I feel like. English and history go so hand in hand. So giving background wherever you can and doing it in a way, obviously that's age appropriate. I would not include, you know, some of the more graphic excerpts for my middle schoolers, but, you know, including some excerpts and perhaps pared down language, depending again on the age of the kids of, and talking about what's going on here. Like my middle school, their big focus is on empathy and relationships and things like that. And that's something that I feel like we should be doing in every classroom, no matter where you are, students need to learn how to get along cooperatively with each other because sometimes they don't learn that at home. And that breaks my heart that sometimes you have to unlearn, you know, like hatred and not wanting to like, you know, get on and be, you know, accepting of everybody. And that's a huge reason why I became a teacher is I want everyone to feel welcome and safe in a classroom. I want to make that kind of environment for people. So I feel like making sure everybody knows that their voice is important, giving everybody an opportunity to write and express their own stories, giving everyone an opportunity to read a story where they can find themselves in it, where they can find inspiration. Um, and just making sure that there is history throughout, making sure that mythology is throughout folklore, culture, you know, song, music, art. How can you incorporate all of that? Make this as holistic as you can. Um, so everyone feels like, well, my culture is just a unit that's done once and then that's it. You know, that's how much we're, you know, like everyone should feel throughout the unit. That's not just a token thing that, oh, we just added it in because we had to, you know, that this is something that's woven throughout always. Deborah, you're in education. What are your thoughts? Um, we actually, I have worked on in the past, and I think this would have been our fourth, no, our fifth season. We've had uh, diversity inclusion sessions for our students, um, primarily for students that have been coming from areas that are rural. I think it's important for them to understand when they're servicing patients, that they service the whole patient. We talked about the holistic approach uh, that Catherine just mentioned. We talk about those things with our students because students have to understand that. You don't get to, the chance to pick and choose who your patients are. 
uh, it's important that you understand that sometimes patients come in and they may need additional assistance with certain things like reading the patient's chart or the health history, those things to help them fill them out. So it's important that students come in knowing that they're going to treat the whole patient and not just the mouth. So uh, as an educator, We've done those things and we've been successful in, in getting those students to understand the relevance of diversity and inclusion. So uh, we've done those things for, like I said, for the past four or five years. And I think it has created um, inclusion um, that would have never, ever been um, a part of the institution if we hadn't spearheaded the ideal that students need that. So, yeah. I read in, um, in White Rage at the end of the book, it's a very telling, um, what, what did she say? That America would rather have Trump than give blacks, uh, what was it? Like, we'd rather have Trump than give blacks more rights or some, something to that effect, right? Yeah? I, and I'm reading this and I'm going, wait, what? You, you, I mean, I'm like, oh my God, this is like, this. you know what's, What's really crazy is it's 2020. We're in 2020. I mean, we're in a, I mean, technologically advanced state. I mean, genetics. I mean, Aaron, there you are, genetic counselor there. <laughs> genetics, scientifically proven equality. And yet, more, and yet more of my black moms are dying today than they were 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I and mean, I, I teach on that because it's important because there's zero reason why we should be living in a world with this much medical technology today and still having women dying at sometimes eight and 10 times the, the amount that white women are dying and not, not, I mean, the numbers have gone up across the board, but it is eight and 10 times different in the same the same state with the same technology, with the same health care resources, there is a problem. There's problem. And I, um, I think that personally, I think every medical school should be teaching on that. I know I help with a topics class in our genetic counseling program. I'm, I help out at, um, I guess I should not name them since they don't know I do this book club, but <laughs> I, I do help teach for a, uh, one of the universities that has a genetic counseling program. And that's one of the topics we cover and we cover it every, every other year. Cause both you have to take it at, the same class is taken by first and second year students. So everybody will get this topic covered and it's, it's important. And it's about inequality. It's about how people perceive the black body, how people perceive, um, that black women's pain is somehow different than any other person. Um, if they're telling you that they have pain, you need to listen. You need to not have biases as a healthcare provider. Wasn't there, who told me this, that, um, that they'd read somewhere in a book that all the OBGYN advances in our world today is because they experimented on women's, on black yeah. women's body without anesthesia. They just cut them up and did whatever they wanted because mm -hmm. the belief was black women don't experience pain. Mm -hmm. Medical somehow, apartheid is the book. Yeah, There's a book about you it. Yeah. You told me, right? 
that yeah, that was would, the one I told you I had to like, I, it was emotionally heavy. That they just good book. did all these experiments on these women and just cut them up. And I'm like, because they don't experience pain. Oh, my thought was, let's do this to someone else. And let's see how, let's do this to your wife. And let's see how she feels. Because I don't think mm-hmm. she experiences pain either. But anyway, I'm sorry. I just get very... Um, yeah, as soon as they started um, doing the procedure, so they experimented on black women, on slaves, to uh, um, make sure that their procedures were efficient. They did that without providing them with pain medication. And then they did the procedure on white women. They got paid for it, and like the doctors got paid for it, and they did it with pain medication for those women. Because somehow white women, you know, we have, we perceive pain differently. That was ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing was just like flabbergasting to read. It, it was, it was crazy. But it's history. No, that, yeah, that wasn't there in this book. No. But yeah, you, you talked about a different book there. It was there, which is basically... That history is is what people, I guess, are taught. Well, it's who's in power, right? Like, that's who writes the history books, and because it's been predominantly white men in this country. I'm told in the South they're teaching that slavery never took place or or that the Civil War wasn't about slavery or something like... They, yes. I, I, when I heard about that, I go, whoa, whoa, wait, what? What? You can't just delete history but i i don't know they try their best i guess um yeah there's like a whole i think in the south whenever you um go into their history classes you get more of a that conversation of it's this civil war wasn't about slavery that it was about states rights and versus you know federal government rights which is yes on the topic of slavery (laughs) i mean it's um that's and that goes back to school boards like as good as it is i think to keep education in the hands of the local community to a certain degree there's always the downside that these little cultural pieces um where um racism and hate exist in some communities which they do and it's more prevalent um they get to determine what's in the curriculum those are the people who are picking it. I, I, I want to piggyback off that or um, add a comment to the fact that when she was, you were talking earlier about exploratory uh, surgery procedures that were experimenting on uh, African-American, these were slaves uh, mm-hmm. at that period. And I think, I can't remember exactly what institution, the statue of the person that performed those yeah. procedures, um, they were, they were, it was a topic or discussion to have that statue removed uh, mm-hmm. from the person who uh, was exploring on these individuals. Um, that was recent here, I would say maybe about six months ago. But um, also, uh, when you talk about power, it's amazing. We, we have this conversation, this dialogue about the fact that when we talk about uh, the limited resources that people of color have and the power that lies with white men. Uh, when you say, when you think about things like how we um, have access to healthcare 
and how it's limited for certain individuals and uh, dense populations. Because if you look at all the other things that are happening right now with the pandemic, the number of African-American, the numbers are disproportionately high. Mm -hmm. And we say that it's because of dispopulation, lack of access to care. All those things are a factor. But these individuals, again, education um, is important. These individuals have to have in, uh, per individuals or people that can guide them, and they have to have the resources. And I always say this, um, when, when you talk about equity, white people see equity as oppression. And that means if you have the pie and you have the whole pie, then all of a sudden somebody says you have to share that pie, that is to them oppression. So when we talk about these things, we talk about the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment, those were designed to oppress people and continue to fight for uh, humanistic rights and things like social justice on a daily. And I don't think that just by people voting is the way to resolve those issues. I think that protesting has to be voting in combination and making people uncomfortable because mm -hmm. people have to have these dialogues about the things that we've encountered. Uh, when you're privileged, you don't understand those things and you don't have to experience those things. But when you're not, then again, it's a problem not for the angry black woman, it's a problem for everyone. And I, I think that it is maybe easier for white women to see um, and kind of relate to those discussions about oppression um, than white men. I, I feel like anytime that I've tried to have conversations about race, like the, and it's, there are some white women that get very offended very quickly, but, um, but it's almost every man, almost every white man, period. Like it's hard to find a white man that does not take offense to a conversation about race. Um, and that's unfortunate, um, but we've got to find ways to have those conversations. I was just, I just finished today the book, um, White Fragility, which is, it talks about how to have those conversations. Um, and gosh, I wish I had had that book under my belt like a year and a half ago because, well, Shanaz knows. And I, for the purposes, since this is being recorded, I can't like, I guess divulge too much, but I called somebody out in my workplace for a bias, for a racial bias. And I did not even realize like what I was going to experience um, calling it out. Uh, I'm glad it was me and not one of my um, coworkers that is black because I mean, I can't even imagine the blowback that would have come to them. Um, it was bad enough to me. And to, I had no name for it, but after reading that book today, I had a name for it. And I probably could have approached the situation in a different way. Like, I guess I, I would have, if I had read the book, um, then I would have predicted better what was going to happen. I just had no, no idea that people would, some people would react the way that they did. And, um, because they're not you, racist. Like, I'm not racist. I'm, I'm, well, fine. The whole I'm not racist. I, I'm very, very equal. I'm not racist. That's what, that's what this book talks about, is about how we have to break down that idea that, <clears throat> that good people don't have racial bias or don't have unconscious bias because that's, that's not right. Like, we are all socialized, right? And, and okay, maybe, like, people get so emotional um, about race, and especially white people get so offended about talking about race that sometimes I think it kind of helps to come at it from, like, 
a gender perspective because it's a little less offensive to some people and then they can get it and they can understand, oh, wait, okay, this makes sense. Now let me apply it to the, the situation of race. Um, but you have to you have to help them understand that it's about socialization. It is. We are from a very, very young age socialized to group people, like what is the same, what is different, what is other, and there's this connotation um, you know, the, the other is bad and the other is, you know, um, less than, especially from the white community. And so I think that when you understand that it's not your fault, like, I mean, okay, if you're a blatant racist, yes, that, that's probably your fault. I mean, it's socialization and the fact that you can't get over some aspects of that. But if you have unconscious bias, that is something that you got to work on. And it's probably something you were socialized to have, but you got to work on it. Like it doesn't excuse you from working on it. I think there's a middle ground of, I think there's your blatant racist. Then there's the, I'm a racist, but I'm not going to let people know I'm a racist. (laughs) I'm just going to smile at you more because you're black. See, then you won't know how I feel about you. So there's that middle person, you know, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing kind of a person. And then there's the person who thinks they're, they're perfectly fine. No, I really believe in all of this, but they have their own biases, which everyone has their biases. And you know, we, we continue to have this conversation about racism. And as a scientist, the Human Genome Project was conducted in 1990 to 2003, was concluded. Um, it, it actually reported that we all are the human race. We, every race stems from Africa. And it's right. amazing how we continue to uh, ignore those facts. You know, we, we say we're a great, you know, a great country of technology and science, but we don't give any type of relevance to science. So look at the president we have now. So we, we can kind of all understand that. But we should all take hydrochloroquine, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I'm so, Michael, I'm, disclaimer, don't do that. <laughs> so, oh, sorry. Oh, disclaimer, do not take hydrochloroquine. That was a joke. I need to behave on my podcast. Really, I really need to behave. This is my podcast and I don't behave. But go ahead, Deborah. Sorry. No, but what I was going to say is that, you know, you guys were talking about certain books. I was not privy to the fact that my husband and I, we had a conversation about. He said that, you know, that there was a book that gave white men the right to give Jesus the phenotypical attributes as a white person and cured. And I did not know that they paid, they did, they paid for this ideology of who this person would be. So that of course, this would be the superior individual, supreme individual. So now, I mean, all these things that we, we, we don't know about our history and we, we, we actually refuse to understand and even to seek the knowledge it's problematic because it gives clarity as to why we are in certain positions and why we, uh, why women, when we talk about the archie, we have the white male, we have the white female, and then you have the black male and then the black female. And why those types of biases are taught to individuals so that they understand this is the archie. You can't disrupt the archie. The archie has been this way for over 400 years and we have to remain this way because when you start to talk about taking away the rights or taking away the privilege and the resources and giving it to other people, 
people are threatened and they feel uncomfortable about those things. And it's not about, I, I, I really truly believe that it's not about people or individuals uh, having, um, I don't want to say the rite of passage, but they have this, this mentality uh, that they're, they're superior. It's just that, again, this is, the, this is the sole reason why people feel that if they can continue to teach our children, like you talked about earlier, Ern, uh, socially, that they are, they are superior to their Black counterparts, then they will continue to, to teach this hatred and this type of mindset to the next generation. And that's why it's so important with genitivity. We have to change that past. We have to change that particular mindset so that we know that we're all equal. We're all human mm -hmm. and there is no such thing as race. It's a human race. Mm -hmm. And it's not even like, it's not always this like overt socialization. Like here's an example um, that I I've noticed. Um, so like when you're at the playground with your children, and there's these little, you know, the little white boys will oftentimes be allowed to get by with what would otherwise be perceived as like rude behavior. So they don't wait their turn on the slide. They push the other kids, you know, and nobody's, oh, the mom's like, oh, I'm so sorry. The mom will apologize to the other mom rather than correct her child. Right. And that is the socialization that I'm talking about. That is the problem. You have to it's not about apologizing to the other mom. Oh, I'm so sorry my child did that. I mean, yes, please do that, but also correct your child first. Like, that's what well, we've got to start doing. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened in my office the other day. I mean, this is not even about correcting behavior. My assistant asked a mom, what surprise would your child like? Would, would he like a ball or a rubber duck? Any guesses as to what the mom said? She said a ball. Rubber duck. Yeah. Huh? No. Rubber duck. He said, he'll have both, thank you. Wow. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I try not to, like, parent um, judge, but... And then I mentioned Nine. to the mom, I, I mentioned, but business is my, my assistant's really new, so she didn't, and I mentioned to the mom, it's usually just a ball or a rubber duck, and the mom just kind of ignored me, and then when, you know, my assistant came in, the kid grabbed one, mom grabbed the other, and that was the end of that. So it's taught, again, it's taught, and it will continue until we break this vicious cycle. For this book club episode, part two for our discussion of white rage and race issues will be posted tomorrow. Before I go, what did you think? Email me a voice memo to livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. I would love to include your audio clip in a future episode. I'm accessible through the email or through Instagram. Get in touch. Also, please share this podcast with your family and friends and encourage them to listen together. Let's start a dialogue. And if you love this podcast, I would greatly appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast engines you listen to. And if you have already written me a review, I thank you. The starting and ending music for this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavic. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books, signing off. 
remember to water the seeds within you. It's time.